This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And for those of you who have been with us over the course of the last couple weeks, you know we've been going through a process whereby we're looking at 152 words from Chapter 1 of The Innocent, and today is the, the third show, and we're looking at looking at it through the third different matrix. I like using that word matrix. So the first two shows have been excellent. And I, they've been really super helpful to me, and I hope they've been really helpful to, to other listeners as well. So I'm excited about this show, Taylor. Take it away. Okie dokie. So for those who might be joining us here, um, just to recap a little bit, um, recently started reading my own work for the very first time. And uh, with this second book in the series, The Innocent, there was something about these first chapters that blew me away from a craft level that I just had not anticipated, that it's a level of craft that even I would aspire to now. And I was trying to figure out what exactly it was that worked. Why are these working as well as they are? You know, because I would like to be able to replicate this myself. Thank you very much. And um, so our first, so there are three different ways I wanted to break it down, like to analyze it. And so the first two shows uh, in this particular little self-contained series were that. The first one was breaking it down one way, second one breaking it down second way. And now we're on the third one of breaking it down and analyzing it. And this analysis, um, I want to use a sort of, uh, it's not, it's a checklist, I guess, in a way, but it's some, we did a tutorial, um, I think it was in May last year, 2019, called Critical Elements and Chapter Openings and Narrative Breaks. And in that tutorial, I was basically doing this same process where I'm breaking down a scene opening. It wasn't the beginning of the book the way this one is, but um, trying to analyze what worked and what didn't. And we basically came up with a list of critical elements that needed to show up in the opening paragraphs of every chapter opening, narrative scene break opening. And, and some of them have to be in specific order. And we broke down why. And so it's a very detailed um, tutorial. It covers two of the audio show of this podcast show, uh, episodes. It was episode 185 and 186, and that's audio only, but we recorded it as well, videoed it, because a lot of it is much easier to catch visually than it is just by listening to it. And you can find that video, which is a single, I think it's a single video, on my Patreon account, which is patreon.com slash taylorstevens. And if you search under the posts using the Hack the Craft tag, it should pull it up. And you're looking for May 2019. Unfortunately, Patreon's not real easily searchable. Um, 
the way I will other find it are. and I'll find it and link to it, link to all of these episodes and the video in the show notes. Because one of the things that's really exciting to me about this particular episode is that we did do this process, or we, we, you kind of came up with the idea of this process by looking at this other material, but that was years after you had written this opening. And yes. I'm, I'm really curious to see how today's tailor can use today's tailor's teaching to for help old to, baby Taylor's work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not going to say old Taylor, but for uh, neophyte writer Taylor, who was uh, writing her second book. This is true. Um, it is. And, and I committed to doing this without having seen a break. I honestly, uh, well, I know now because I've done the legwork on it um, prior to the show to have to tell you what I'm about to tell you. But prior to that, I honestly really had no idea. I, I didn't know if I'd find out that I've been full of poop and just telling people the wrong thing all this time. I really didn't know. Um, I want to do a little side note here. And that um, the reason we were even able to do that critical elements and chapter openings uh, tutorial was because Carol um, C.A. Newsom was kind enough to submit her material and let us use it on the show. Um, it was part of a line editing series where people would submit material I would work with it. They would tell me what their issues were that they were hoping for help with. And then I would do it as a recording and we'd all win from that. And we haven't done one of those in a long time because we haven't really had any requests or submissions lately. But I just want to let people know we are still open for submissions. So if you've got, you know, a chunk of text that you would like me to work with, a thousand words or less preferably, and you have a specific issue that you're hoping for help on, it's a great way for you to get help, for us to have material for the show and everybody wins. So, like Steve said, the interesting thing about this particular tutorial is that until I'd actually put those show notes together, I hadn't really thought through the process much. And the material that I'm of my own that I'm going to run through this process was written way, way before I ever did that. So, um, yeah, this is going to be fun. Um, Since it had been a while, since I had worked or like even like I forget sometimes the stuff it's there's just so much going on I don't always remember every single thing that I said so I go back I went back and I listened to a bit of that tutorial as well just to kind of refresh my memory um and so even if you have already heard that tutorial before or seen it I really recommend going back and and refreshing over it too because there's a lot of really, really good stuff in there. Like that tutorial itself is almost like a master class on writing, just a self-contained class right there. If you can, if you can master the concepts that are in that class in and of itself, you have an incredibly strong um, repertoire of tools for crafting just about anything inside any work that you're working on. So I, I would recommend going back and refreshing it just there's so much and you forget, I forget. And yeah, so anyway, um, the first thing I'm gonna do here is I'm gonna recap and read the material again. And I've been reading it every week beforehand, but it just so that we have it fresh in our mind, what it is we're working with so that as we start breaking it down, we know what we're talking about. So here are the opening paragraphs or see the opening first little nugget of scene from The Innocent. At last, the crowd moved forward. He picked up the duffel bag and slipped the strap over his shoulder. Aching and nauseous, 
He placed one deliberate foot in front of the other, part of the collective escape from transatlantic captivity, down the aisle, out the belly of the plane, along the jetway, and through the sunlit terminals of Mohammed V Airport. Three days of little sleep had brought him here. Three days and three lifetimes since that call in the wee hours that had, without warning, provided long-awaited news. He'd sat in the dark, rigid on the edge of the bed, searching his way through possibilities until, certain there was really only one option, he'd picked up the handset once more and placed the call to Morocco. I need a favor. Those had been his only words. No introduction, no explanation, only the plea. Tell me, she'd said. I'm coming to you. So... That's the material we're working with. Now, here are the basics from that critical elements and chapter openings tutorial. And I've kind of summarized, this is, I, I went back and I found my original notes and I copied some of that over, but I've cut down quite a bit to keep from having to repeat everything all over again. So this really is more of a summary. And again, highly recommend going back to the original. So. The, the concept behind this is no matter where the reader is in the story, there are two things they always need to know, and they need to know this in this specific order. Whose eyes they're seeing the scene through, or whose head they're in, or who the scene is happening to, because sometimes scenes don't show you through the eyes of the character, they show you what's happening to a character. So if it's not a real close-up, point of view, you, they at least need to know who, who it is in this scene that, that it, it's happening to or whatever. The second thing they need to know after they know the who is where that character's body is in relation to time, space, and place. Now, ideally, those two elements are given to the reader within the opening sentences of each new chapter, each new scene break, Sometimes, based on scene setting or whatever, it's not always possible to introduce those immediately. So at the bare minimum, they need to know those two things in that order before anything happens to or with the character, before, thing, before there's motion and everything's going on or, or, or words are being spoken. And this all has to do with avoiding disembodied voices, um, bodies that have no roots in any time or place that are just kind of floating there in the void. Uh, we call, I think we call that teleportation issues. We just, we need to know where those bodies are and we need to know who they are. Primary importance. Second is we need to know, and it's not always possible to squeeze this into the opening sentence, and that is a sense of atmosphere or mood. And it's really important that we know that this is a sense. In other words, it's not necessarily description. Although it can be description, it's not necessarily description. And it's something that's built from the word choices that we use to describe other things that are happening. So it's a tag on or a slipped in between other things. And the reason we want that sense of atmosphere and mood is because that's what's going to set the tone for what's about to happen, the whole rest of the scene. So if it's missing, we don't know how we're supposed to feel. And it's not like you want to tell the readers how they're supposed to feel. You impart it 
that's what the mood is, whether it's ominous or light or happy. And sometimes that's imparted merely from the writing style and the voice. And if it's missing, you're going to want to add it somehow, whether through um, throwing in a word here or there that's just geared towards closing off that ambiguity. And the thing about atmosphere and mood is it's the one element that's fine to show up before character, like who the character is or where that person is in space and time, because it, it might help to place the body or whatever. But it, it's long as when we do get the character and the character's body after the mood atmosphere, little words or whatever, that those two elements are shown in the correct order. We don't want the character's body before we know who it is, right? So anything that shows up before we know whose head we're in, that's the reason for all this is because that's boring. It's noise. We have a tendency to skip right past it. So the more you add of mood, atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera, before we get to who it is, the more we start to block it out as we're scanning the pages looking for the character because character is everything. So after we've got that sorted out, the next three elements that we need to have, and there's leeway here, they don't have to show up in a particular order as long as they show up after the other stuff. And that is why the characters where they are, the point of view characters frame of mind, which is sort of a different version of mood and atmosphere because you don't necessarily have to out and out say it, but we need to feel it. And then any other characters that are present in the scene and where those bodies are in space and time, because we don't want someone else to start talking or someone else to start interacting with our character if we didn't even know they were there in the first place. So again, character, like whose head we're in comes first, where that person is in space and time comes second. And a sense of mood and atmosphere is entwined in all of that, which can go first. It's okay, but it needs to be there somewhere. And then we get why the characters where they are, the point of view characters frame of mind, any other characters that are present and where those bodies are. And then at last, finally, any other details, like in terms of description or whatever that needs to show up. And we need to see them. And this is the most important part about this final thing. We need to see them in the order that the character sees, hears, or experiences them. We don't, we don't want to be clever and show them in you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, or focus in on one small thing and neglect the larger picture picture around us. We we just need to see it through their eyes as they see it. And that's what's going to give the reader a foundation for what stage our actors are interacting on. So that's the essence of what that two series tutorial was all about. So now that we have that all in our head, I'm gonna read the material again because we know what we're looking for. And I'm not gonna break it down just yet because I want you guys to hear it, knowing what it is we're looking for. And just to remind you that's whose head we're in, where that character's body is in time, space, and place, and a sense of mood and atmosphere. Those are the main things we're looking for as we read this. At last, the crowd moved forward. He picked up the duffel bag and slipped the strap over his shoulder. Aching and nauseous, he placed one deliberate foot in front of the other, part of the collective escape from transatlantic captivity, down the aisle, out the belly of the plane, 
along the jetway and through the sunlit terminals of Mohammed V Airport. Three days of little sleep had brought him here, three days and three lifetimes since that call in the wee hours that had, without warning, provided long-awaited news. He'd sat in the dark, rigid on the edge of the bed, searching his way through possibilities until, certain there was really only one option, he'd picked up the handset once more and placed the call to Morocco. I need a favor. Those had been his only words. No introduction, no explanation, only the plea. Tell me, she'd said, I'm coming to you. So now we move into breaking this down. So the first thing that struck me as I tried to color code this based on sort of the palette that I'd built from the previous tutorial is how much of the language here, the word choices in these opening sentences are pulling double duty. So if I was working with something more adaptive or flexible than basic word, which is what I use, I, I would be layering two or three colors over some of these sentences because they're providing more than just one of those critical elements at the same time. And that's, I think, part of what makes these opening chapters feel so much, is there's such density in the way words have multiple uses. So with our first sentence, we get, at last the crowd moved forward. And what this is doing is dropping us immediately into the character's head. So we don't know who the character is yet, but as we talked about in the original tutorial, when we have an opening chapter, we have a lot more leeway in terms of how soon we know things. In other words, if this was in the middle of a book or something, we would already have a sense of who this character is by name, even if the name wasn't mentioned. In the first chapter, you don't have that always right off the bat, but there's leeway. There's, there's a lot of room for forgiveness here because we have this expectation that everything is new and that the introductions will be coming. So what matters here is that the in the first thing, the first sentence, we have the character. We know we're in his head. At last, the crowd moved forward. We're seeing that from his point of view. So as an aside, this sentence has three element layers because in addition to giving us the character with the crowd move forward, it also begins the process of establishing where that character's body is in time, place, and space, while also hinting at mood and atmosphere. So we just get that bam right off the bat. Then the next sentence says, he picked up the duffel bag and slipped the strap over his shoulder. So here the word he is a follow through on establishing who the character is. So with this, there's no question about whose head we're in. And the rest of this sentence doesn't really neatly fit the definition of establishing where the character's body is in time, space, or place, because we still don't really know where he is. But in context, sandwiched between that opening sentence, which is alluding to time and space, and to the rest of the paragraph, which we're gonna do in just a second, it definitely does. And I think that's where it falls, as in establishing the character's body, where it's located. But I'm not 100% sure. It's a question mark to me. I'm learning as I go, too. So that's where those first two sentences are. Now, what follows is kind of difficult for me to wrap my head around in terms of how much weight each word is pulling. And again, it's really complicated trying to do this in word. But what we get first is, Aching and nauseous, 
He placed one deliberate foot in front of the other, part of the collective escape from transatlantic captivity, down the aisle, out of the belly of the plane, along the jetway, and through the sunlit terminals of Mohammed V Airport. So this one extended sentence manages to interweave mood and atmosphere, and that's aching and nauseous, deliberate, escape, captivity, and sunlit. Those are all words that give us a sense of mood and atmosphere. With the character's frame of mind, which is an element that would technically supposed to come later, which is aching and nauseous, while also anchoring the character in time and space and place. He placed one deliberate foot in front of the other. He's escaping from transatlantic captivity down the aisle, out of the belly of the plane and through the sunlit terminals of the airport. While also adding detail in the order the character sees and hears and experiences it. It's all in that one portion of the sentence. It's, they're all pulling double duty now or triple. Now, a few things that I thought, thought were really interesting here is, do you remember how in one of the early, earlier episodes, I think it was the first one of this series, I had said that aching and nauseous, the way that it was placed was twitching my brain, but I couldn't figure out a way to line edit it. And I had, I'd sat there for a little while trying to figure it out. I couldn't figure out how to line edit it, edit it without adding a different twitch. And when I color code it here, I can totally see why that phrase is bothering me so much. And that's because even though it also counts for mood and atmosphere, it's pulling double duty for character's frame of mind. And character frame of mind doesn't belong here. It doesn't belong until after we've established who the character is and where their body is. So it doesn't belong, but it also doesn't not belong because the sentence before it almost gives us the character's body and time, space and place. So it works, but not totally. And so the twitch is my brain. It's picking up this iffy placement. Like, it doesn't know what to do with it. It's like, yeah, if I read it this way, it works. But if I read it without it, it doesn't work. And so it just was like, it keeps sliding by because it's iffy, but it's not iffy. So that's why I couldn't figure out what to do with it. So if I was writing the same book now, I would probably spend hours writing and rewriting this one paragraph trying to get that twitch gone without introducing another one. And don't be like me. <laughs> like, the bazillion people who've read this book, I am betting no one but me has ever noticed this. So don't do what I'm doing. All right. So the second thing that I thought was interesting in this particular paragraph is that it also gives us an example of something that I'd completely missed when I was building out these critical elements for the original tutorial. Now, if you recall, when I was speaking of those first two elements, character's body, uh, who the character is in the character's body, I had specifically said that they needed to, the reader needed to know whose head we were in and where that character was in time, space, and place in that specific order before the character did anything, which is character in motion, or said anything, which is dialogue. Now, like I explained just a bit ago, the reason those two elements are so critical and the reason why they have to come first is because until the reader knows whose head we're in, where that character's body is, Everything else is either noise or it doesn't register or it's disembodied detail. And as the reader gets more detail, they have to keep overriding them. 
until they finally get all the critical elements. So the original tutorial goes into a lot of detail, explains all those whys, and I'm not going to cover it all here again. But what we have here in this these opening paragraphs really does appear at first blush to completely violate that rule. Because instead of letting the readers know where the character's body is in time, space, and place before there's any movement, the movement happens first. But actually, it's through the movement that the reader learns where the character's body is. So I'm going to read that part again. He placed one deliberate foot in front of the other. That's movement. The character's doing something. We don't know where the character's body is until we get to part of the collective escape from transatlantic captivity down the aisle, out of the belly of the plane, and through the sunlit terminals. So apparently I just violated my own rule, right? But when I was breaking this down to try and figure out why this works and how it is that every word seems to be pulling double or triple duty, it gets really clear that instead of violating the rule of what needs to happen first, it's actually following that rule, but at a much more difficult wordcraft level. Because character in motion is such a foundational concept. We've talked about it for, I'm sure I'm going to talk about it again, that the best way to convey detail and information is through the character in motion doing things. So as I read this now and I listen to myself teaching on it, I feel really dumb for not having included that in the time I put the original material together. But it was that the material I was looking at at the time didn't have movement that made me go, oh, wait, no, this is the order it needs to go or whatever. So I am loath to go back to the rule and add exceptions to it because the more words we add to rules, the more exceptions we make, the more they have to be explained, the less useful they are. And trying to fit this into it in a parenthesis or something like that just is maddening, trying to simplify it. But I think probably what I should have said at the begin beginning when I was teaching about this should have been something closer to at the bare minimum, the reader needs to know whose head we're in and where that character's body is within time, space, place, in that order, before the character does anything, character in motion, or while the character is in motion, and before anything is said, which is dialogue. So I think that sort of kind of clarifies it, but it's not simply clarified without explanation. So this is kind of an aha for me as I was reading. It's like, oh, character in motion. Okay. So the next thing, third thing that I found fascinating about that little segment is that once we get past those first two critical elements of where the character is and where the character's body is, there's flexibility on how the next three elements show up. And we wouldn't normally want to jump right into that detail without like establishing where the characters, why the characters there, what their frame of mind is, and the other characters are present. But this detail of the things that he's saying at the same time, which normally would come after those, it's right there in that top paragraph. But it works because it's also establishing characters. It's like there's there's some 
blending here of functionality. When something is serving more than one purpose, it gives you apparently a little bit of leeway on how it works. So a big part of what's making this opening sequence work is that we're getting line after line after line of each word pulling double duty. And it's kind of similar to, it's a, it's a definition or a terminology we would borrow from coders where they use the word elegant. And elegant in coding speak is like when you have this really beautiful piece of code because it function, it does as, it uses as few uh, words or elements as possible to, to accomplish the function that it's meant, the thing that it's meant to do. And that's kind of what this text is doing. It's elegant in that same way that so much is being accomplished with so few words. So that was my takeaway from just those first, running it through this color code thing. So next, we get the sentence that says, three days of little sleep had brought him here. Three days and three lifetimes since that call and the wee hours that had without warning provided long-awaited news. So now we're just into the full second paragraph, and we've already been handed our fifth out of six elements. So, and that's why the character is where they are. That whole thing is telling us why the character is where they are. And within that why, we also get the word here. Three days of little sleep had brought him here. And what's that that's doing is it's taking us back to where the character's body is in time, space, and place, and it's re-anchoring that body so that it leaves no doubt in the reader's mind where we are. And I find that I do this a lot in my writing, extinctually, instinctually. Um, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an anchoring technique where I will often use the word now or here. And then those are transitions that they're like to bring us back to where we are after I've taken a little detour into the past or um, if there's anything that's not sure. It, it, it might feel like a needless word, but the, the whole entire purpose is to, to anchor the reader in where we are in time and in space and place. So after this three days of little sleep thing, then we get a quick flashback. flashback. And this fascinates me too, because in this one sentence flashback, we're getting all of those same elements in the correct order again. And it says, he'd sat in the dark, rigid on the edge of the bed, searching his way through possibilities until certain there was really only one option. He picked up the handset once more and placed the call to Morocco. So the he reminds us whose head we're in. And then the conjunctive had, he'd, right? It tells us we're in the past. That's what shifts us, um, shifts us into the time, space, and place of the past. Then we get sat in the dark, rigid on the edge of the bed. That's giving us both the character's body, like where it is in space, time, space, and place, and it's giving us a sense of mood and atmosphere in the dark, rigid, edge of the bed. That's all mood and atmosphere. Then we get searching his way through possibilities, and we get certain there was really only one option. Both of these are giving us the character's frame of mind. And he picked up the handset once more and placed the call to Morocco. It doesn't at first glance fall neatly into any category. It really took me a while of thinking about this. Like, is this just, you know, words? What is this just plot that doesn't belong in this or what? But then I realized that in the context, 
what it's doing is it's satisfying the element of why the character is where he is. Only in this case, it's connecting the decision in the past that got us to where we are in the present. So it's sort of this why, right? It's answering the question of why we're here right now, and it's tying it to an action that he did in the past. And then the call to Morocco, that's pulling triple duty, I think, because it's giving us the why, and it's beginning the thread to establish other characters who are present because he's now about to interact with someone else. And it draws a direct line to the order of things as he sees or experiences them in the now, not in this past little segment, but in the now. Um, and so it's, it's another link between past and present. So then we get, I need a favor. And those had been his only words, no introduction, no explanation, only the plea. And I need a favor and only the plea. These are reinforcing the past tense, which is re-anchoring us in time, space, and place, and it's returning us to the character's frame of mind. I don't have anything I can say about those had been his only words, no introduction, no explanation. If I had to like say which one of these elements is it, I would say maybe mood or atmosphere or character's frame of mind, either one, both, I don't know. I didn't even bother coloring them out. It, they're just there. And then we get tell me, she'd said. And although this isn't exact because it's all still past tense, the she being referenced to here, is, and this she isn't physically present, right? But because it's audible spoken dialogue, it formally technically fills that final role of establishing other characters that are present. Even though she's not in the room, her voice is. So it's letting us know what other characters are around, but we don't need to place her body, because it's just over the telephone. So just it's ex the existence of the, her voice is enough to establish that there's another character and we can ignore the other part of it because we don't see her. And that finish, and then we finish up with I'm coming to you, which again is character's state of mind and why the character is where he is. And so within the first 149 words of this story, we are handed every single critical element in the order we're supposed to get them twice. And in many cases, the same words are being used to interweave two or three elements together at the same time, except for our little exception of um, not anxious and nauseous or whatever that was. That's the exception to this. And that's the one part that I'm like, eh, this might not really work the way it's supposed to. So in the first breakdown, of this material, we looked at it from more of an emotional perspective. Like these were my notes as I was reading it of how it was hitting me, right? Why is this, why is this making my brain fire on all these, all cylinders? In the second, we looked at it to see if we were avoiding issues in any of the primary legs, the, the, the main trouble spots that fell under both story and writing where fiction Usually you're going to, if you're having running into a trouble, it's going to usually fall under one of those three things in story or one of those three things in writing. And we looked at it from that angle. And in this third, we're looking at it from the, just like a purely disconnected analytical. We're not engaging with the characters at all. We're just analyzing the elements to see if we have them all present in the opening paragraphs. From these, these three different ways of looking at it, 
we can see that the reason that this sequence is working so well is that every single count, it's ticking every single box that needs to be ticked. It's ticking it emotionally. Um, it's ticking it from just a, a structurally, from the way story problems usually arise, and it's ticking it on a purely analytical level. And again, the exception being on that third breakdown where it's obvious that there's a bit of iffiness on one of the element orders being out of place or not. Now, could I reverse engineer this? Could I say, okay, based on these things, I want to create a perfect opening sequence and then take what we just did and reverse it and create a perfect opening? Probably not. <laughs> like <laughs> This works really good in retrospect and it works really good to find out what's not working. And it works really good for finding out why it's working so well, like what boxes is ticking. But some of this, I think it just comes from having a sense of story. So if you don't have a sense of story and you're really struggling with that, what this will do is show you where you might be missing it and then give you a map to fixing it. But it's not going to give you the words and say, here are the magic words to make a sentence work or opening paragraphs work in some awesome, fantastic way. That's all I got. All right. So the magic words, we are at uh, close to 40 minutes now. So the magic words no. are, thank you guys for listening this week. <laughs> I have some questions for Taylor about this, and we'll use those questions as our chit-chat for next week's episode. So thank you all for listening. Taylor, thank you for this really fascinating uh, three-part series. And I, I, uh, at least one of us is going to go back and listen to episodes 185 and 186 again. As, as a part of this study. So uh, thank you for tying all that together. And thank you guys for listening. We will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. See you guys next week. <laughs>